All right, well, welcome back to our study in the book of Romans. Today we're in lesson 22, and we're in that section of the book of Romans on sanctification, as you all know, and we're in the sixth lesson within chapter 6 to 8 on sanctification. Today we're in chapter 7, verses 7 to 13, and I'm simply calling this whole section, 7 to 13, the law of God, sin, and me. Or, if you want it for you, and you. You know, one thing I really like is Christian biographies. Or autobiographies when they're well done. Uh, over the years, I've been influenced a lot by different biographies. I remember when I first became a Christian, one of the first biographies I ever read was Jim Elliott's journals, or the journals of Jim Elliott. And that was given to me as an 18-year-old and a new believer, and I just consumed that. It was like, yeah, that seemed real to me. You know, like his struggle, and then what happened in his life. Um, other biographies, I wrote a few down. George Mueller's biography, of course, on faith. Hudson Taylor and missions and faith. But a few other ones that really deeply impacted me along this line were this question. The biographies that helped me the most were the ones that shared their testimony, shared how God used them, but shared their struggle. How did they deal with the stuff I know that I'm dealing with every day? And if I saw God use great men and women of faith, and then I saw they struggled too, but also how God used them, then it gave me hope in my own life. So a few that I've really enjoyed. Martin Luther, uh, two or three biographies I've read on Luther. Uh, Francis Schaeffer and his wife Edith Schaeffer's autobiographical look at their lives, The Tapestry, was particularly helpful to me. John Bunyan. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Augustine in the early church, the confessions of St. Augustine. And then, as I said, Jim Elliott's particular biography. In each of those, I see an earnestness to describe a real Christian faith and a real Christian struggle. And how God overcame, in many cases, particular sins. And then, in each of these cases, and I see this throughout church history, in every case, I should say, of an honest biography, I see sins that were never, ever conquered. Now, what I don't mean is they had a life-dominating sin that was master of their life. But rather, you saw in each of their honest biographies a struggle that never went away. And if you've read any of their biographies, like Martin Luther, to the day he died, struggled as a Christian with his conscience. Before he was a Christian, he struggled massively with his conscience. But after he became a Christian, much of that was washed away, but there was always a continuous struggle with it. I say all that to say this. We're about to look at Paul's autobiographical look at his struggle with sin. Right? We have the autobiography of Paul in chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, in which he's going to tell us two things. Here's my struggle when the law basically defeated me and God saved me. And then verses 14 to 25. And here's my struggle now as a believer. If you look out there on the top of the page, I have verses 7 to 13. And uh, I've color-coded it because I figured, hey, if you get nothing else out of this, you can look at that. If you notice that in yellow are the times Paul says, we, in the sense of inclusive we, we all, or I, or me. Do you know that in verses 7 to 25 that we're going to look at in his autobiography, he says, I or me, 
or the inclusive we 50 times. He's talking about himself. That's our first clue. Then in verses 7 to 25, he uses the word the law or commandment 22 times. And then he uses the word sin in the sense of the flesh or the old man, depending on what verse he's talking about, that inward compulsion to sin 14 times. So what do we know? Verses 7 to 25 are dealing with Paul's personal autobiographical struggle with the law and sin. And how that has been an issue for him. Being under the law, then as a Christian dealing with the law, and his sin nature is still there. And it's very much our own struggle today. Now, good and godly Christians are going to say, can you get out of Romans 7? That's the question of sanctification. Are we stuck in Paul's story that we're about to look at? Was Paul stuck there? Is that his whole Christian life that he wants to talk about? Yes. No. And we're going to look at the big picture, but what do I mean by that? Romans 7 is Paul's real struggle with sin in his life as a believer, the sin nature or the flesh versus the spirit and versus his desires. Chapter 8, thankfully, goes on to another law, right? Here he talks about the law, the law of sin and death in chapter 7, the law of the mind and the law of the members of my body. In chapter 8, he's going to go to a fifth law, and that is the law of the spirit of life. And chapter 8 is Paul's magnum opus on how the Holy Spirit helps struggling sinners like himself. Now, we're going to get to this because some people think Romans 8 gets you out of Romans 7 and you never struggle again. That they see the connection being, Paul says, this is what I am. But thankfully, the Spirit now has taken me to another plane. And I don't even ever want to be a Raiders fan again. Right? It's just totally gone. Does Romans 8 get you out of Romans 7 permanently? I don't believe so. I think the connection, and that's Lord willing where we're going, is Romans 8 is Paul showing how the Spirit takes you to a different place in your ability to fight that battle, but it does not eradicate the battle. It's a weapon to use in the battle. It is the ultimate reason we can succeed in the battle. But the battle will never go away. If you combine those two that way, I think you have a proper view of sanctification. Um, long story short, I think Romans 8 is talking about how to overcome the law of gravity. The Holy Spirit is an airplane. Now, the, the metaphor breaks down. If you get on the airplane, would you never come back down to the ground? But, if, you know, there's issues of uh, how much the Spirit wants to do, your yieldedness, and so the plane seems to come back and forth between those things. But largely, it gives you the grace to overcome this amazing gravity of sin but not permanently, but on particular seasons. Okay, let's just close in prayer. That's all I got. That's the introduction. Well, let's read verses 7 to 13 then in that context of Paul's beginning. What did the law do to Paul in light of all of that? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary... I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, 
produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. The ring of power. They were all deceived, were they not? So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Paul's personal struggle with sin, the commandment, and how the law slayed him so that it might bring him to Christ. Verses 7 to 13. All right, let's take a look then more deeply, okay? Let's look at verse 7 now. The law taught us, taught us how sinful we are. For again, we shall, what shall we say then? The law is sin? No, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Number one, Paul is addressing a logical inference from the verses we just looked at last week. If we're no longer married to the law, and the law is dead to us, and the law is no longer our master, the law is not over us, then the question is, what, what was the law about? And was the law a problem? Did, the, did God remove it because it was a problem? No, 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 it was me who's the problem. And so, A, since we are no longer married to law, nor under the law, it raises questions regarding the law's nature, its purpose, and its ongoing relationship to our sin nature, which we discussed, in, or Paul discussed in chapter 6. And our sanctification. Number two. The law taught us how sinful we truly are. You know, when Carla went to see the doctor the other day, I was surprised that the stuff that they put her through, you know, the, the CAT scan, the MRI kind of things, the, the radiology appointments, I was surprised that when she was done, it didn't heal her. I really was. I thought we were going there for them to look at it and the machine would heal her, right? Is that not boom? It's supposed to do something in that little machine. What I found out was it just tells you what your problem is. That's what the law does. That's what the law does. So the law taught us how sinful we truly are. A, Paul doesn't mean that there is no sin apart from the law, as he's already demonstrated in chapter 1 and 2, that everyone is guilty before God whether they have the written law or not. So he's not saying, without the law I didn't know there was no sin. But rather, without the law, I didn't know how sinful I was. B. Both creation and conscience are sufficient revelation, as we have been shown in in Romans, of the existence and moral perfection of God to condemn man, but those do not save without the gospel. And then C. Those who have the written law don't fully grasp their sin because they don't really understand the law. Let me stop. Paul's point is, you know, Pastor Gabe is preaching... Philippians 3, this week, right, again, 
And it's Paul's other autobiographical point was, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I owned a Chick-fil-A. I mean, I was, I was a legit Christian, right? We homeschooled. I mean, we did everything real Christians do. But he wasn't a Christian. And the point is, and I show this passage about the rich young ruler to make the point, that under the law, the people of Israel did not understand the law and its purpose. They thought it was to make them righteous, right? They thought it was to be used. The MRI machine was supposed to heal them instead of just show them their sin. And so I remind you of the rich young ruler story here at the bottom of page one. What a beautiful story. And someone, we know the rich young ruler, came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. By the way, just on that point, Jesus is doing the, you don't even know who I am, do you? Like, you can only call God truly good. Do you understand I'm God? No, you don't. Verse 18. Then he said to him, I'm sorry, uh, there's only one good. Keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Uh, an understanding of your sin? Right? What does Jesus tell him to do? Go and sell all your property and give it to the poor and come follow me. And what does he do? He goes away sad because he owned much property. Now, people try to mistakenly say, oh, see, in order to have eternal life, you had to give up your possessions. No, Jesus was doing a heart idol thing, right? He's like, the young man's saying, what else do I have to do here? And he's like, well, oh, I know your idol. He's God. Your idol's this huge. It's the stuff you possess. Give that up and come follow me. He's like, no, I love that more than I love you. And that's the problem is the law shows you, well, I went to Sunday school and I did this, but it doesn't show the heart until you start looking at the law more clearly. And that's what we're going to look at here in a second. Yeah. Brother Steve. What was it that made him know that he still needed to do something? The rich young ruler? Yeah. Um, he went away sad because Jesus gave him an out. He said, what else do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus is showing him, it's not what you do. You have a problem. right? So he's pointing out his sin problem. Kind of like the woman at the well. When the woman at the well is asking Jesus questions, Jesus isn't worried about how many husbands or wives, uh, husbands she's had, had four husbands, you're living with a man now. Those are all external things. But rather the heart issue, right? And the woman at the well is like, this man told me everything in here, you know? So, it's a good question. My impression of what the, the young man is saying is, I pretty much ripped it. I'm totally done with the whole, like, I already got all the Sunday school points. But is there anything else I might be lacking here? He's thinking works righteousness. He's not thinking, I'm a sinner and I need help. Right? He's just saying, look, I got, I got trophies. I've memorized the Bible. I went to Awana, an adventure club. I did it all. I got the Timothy Award, you know. So, right. But that's why Jesus' thing could not be done. Jesus pointed to something the young man realized in the moment. Oh my gosh, my merit system is just undone. 
because I've got a heart problem. You know, so. Good. All right. Page two. So the law uncovers the depth of our depravity, right? The law reveals sin as an offense against God, and the law goes beyond mere external behaviors. That was a point that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 5. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those guys had all the awards, man. They were, they were poster boys. And then he says, verse 21, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, or raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, I'm sorry, or raka, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The point of all of this is, again, Paul was undone by the law. He would not have known the depth of his sin, is what he's saying. He would have just thought, I'm a good person. But the law comes along and points to the heart. And it starts to show, you know what, I've wanted these things in my heart. So have I broken the commandment? Yes. I have. So the law goes beyond prohibitions, too. It doesn't simply tell you not to do stuff. The law demands that you do things, such as love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Yeah, and the question is, when Jesus told the young man uh, all those commandments, and he didn't say at the end, and repent, but Jesus pointed to something that showed him that he needed repentance. Like, we don't have the whole story here. We have the incident with Jesus and the young man. Let, let me just say this. We know... We, oh, go ahead, now. Good question. Right. So, Jesus, being a lot smarter than me, probably had figured out what to do with this situation. But I would say this. If you look at his treatment of the woman at the well, and the rich young ruler, and the woman caught in adultery, whether that's canonical or not, in John chapter 8, and other incidents, he doesn't have a shtick. He doesn't have a one gospel presentation. He doesn't say from every one of them. I'm going to need to begin with the bad news first. Uh, we're all sinners, Romans chapter 3. Uh, right? He doesn't have a shtick. He's dealing with the person as they are in that moment. And he's dealing with their particular sin issue and who they are. And the woman at the well, again, totally different conversation. You know, you'll thirst and all of those things to this man. Jesus isn't trying to wrap everybody up in a gospel presentation in six minutes. Jesus is talking about heart issues. He's dealing with it. And the law, by giving him the law back, the young man came as a I keep the law guy. So Jesus dealt with him on the you kept the law? How's that going for you? Like I'll talk to Catholics and present the gospel and you'll usually say, I'm good. I, keep, I, I live my life by the Ten Commandments. And I'll say, name them. Eight out of ten Catholics can't name them all. You know, so Jesus is just giving him his medicine back and saying, So you've been doing it all. You're that guy. Hey guys, finally we found the most righteous man in Israel. It's kind of a play. Uh, look, one more thing you probably lack. Do this and follow me. The whole system comes down. He leaves sad. Because he, his affections have been shown to be sinful, and, and he doesn't want to do this. 
And so, again, uh, we'd like to wrap it up in it, but Jesus chased him down and gave him the gospel, but that's not the situation. It's, it's what a good counselor would do. The first session is tell me your story and then start to get into it. You realize in the gospels, Jesus used 75 different questions. Separate questions. Uh, I did a series one time in, in it called The Questions of Christ. And he uses 75 different questions. Why? Because he's a master teacher. And because he's addressing the heart, right? Like, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? Question. Or, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks questions, man. It's like people look. Like, and so it's a method we should use, I think, right? With our children, with ourselves. And, all right, I'm going to go back. I don't know that I helped you now, but I'm going on with my notes because that's all I got today. All right? All right, middle of page two, number three. Paul's choice of the 10th commandment as his example drives home two very important realities. Why did he pick coveting? He could have picked any of them. He could have picked adultery, he could have picked any of those, and he could have been guilty of those. But he picks the last commandment. Here's a couple of things to think about. Coveting is a hard issue. Right? You can't see coveting. You can see the actions of it, and the actions of it are typically in the other stuff. Thou shalt not steal, or take another person's wife, or whatever. Take their lawn chair. Just bad. What does a lawn chair have to do with any of this, you might ask? In many ways, I suggest, it's a root cause behind the commission of other sins in the Decalogue. And so the commandment challenges the desires, not simply the actions of a person. So if you understand that your desires are wrong, then you will realize that you have actually broken all the commands in your heart. That's Paul's point. That particular command, which he says, and then the commandment, that particular one, kept driving home the point for him. That's what he's saying. In his this is Paul's testimony. And now the Apostle Paul shall share with us how he came to know Christ. I thought I was a good person. I obeyed the law constantly. Everyone thought of me as a Sunday school hero. I did everything externally. In fact, in Philippians 3, he'll say, as to the law, as people see it, as the Pharisees counted, as we count righteousness among men, I was blameless. I did everything I was told to do. But, I read this commandment, and it made me undone. Because I realized what I really wanted in my heart was everything opposite of the stuff I was doing. I wanted to sin. I wanted to do those things. But I hid them behind the stuff, right? Is that not Paul's testimony here? And that's what he's saying. When I saw this commandment, I realized, ruh -ruh, that's really what I wanted. So B, the law that Paul has in mind in verses 1 to 6 that we looked at last week, when he said we're, we're no longer under the law, is clearly the moral law. How do I know that? Because it's the Ten Commandments. He is giving us one of the Ten Commandments and saying we're no longer under this law. We are no longer married to the law code of the Old Covenant. Now, don't worry. Paul's going to fill in. Are we all lawless people now? We have the law of the Spirit of life. We have the royal law of Christ in the New Testament. There's plenty of law but it's filled with grace. And number four, Paul has already explained what the law cannot do, right? Uh, the law cannot justify, Romans 3. 
because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the point. Paul's experiencing the knowledge of sin. And then the law cannot sanctify, Romans 5. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law doesn't help you abound in good works. It only brings up more transgression. Chapter 6, for sin shall not be the master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And then Romans 7, as we've already seen, therefore, my brethren, you also were to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined, you were made to die, I should say, so you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Why? Why are we no longer under the law and married to Christ? In order that you might bear fruit for God, that is sanctification. It's not through the law. It's through this new relationship with Christ, by the work of the Spirit, through the Word of God. Anyway, I'll keep going page 3. Thank you for coming today. In Galatians 3, top of page 3, Paul explains the purpose of the law. If you're a Christian for any length of time, you know this. But let this hit you, verses 1 to 6, and what Paul is saying here. What was the purpose of the law? To do exactly what it did to Paul. Right? Paul's personal testimony of, that's what it did to me. It showed me I was really a bad sinner. That's why the law exists. Galatians 3, 19 to 26. Paul says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not one for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? God had promised Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing, and all those wonderful things, right? Long before the law. And then the law came along. Why did God give the law on top of this promise? He was going to say, I'm going to give this to you, so that they would know that the seed, the Messiah who was coming, was someone they personally needed. He wasn't just a history figure. All right. Is the law then contrary to the promise God made it never be? For if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. I love how Paul thinks. Uh, I was in jail. I was like a prisoner. And being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, our instructor, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And this is the key. But now, that faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The law, in its first use, and we'll talk about more about that in the next couple of weeks, the law's main use is to show sinners that they are in God's, God's wrath and that they cannot save themselves and they can do no righteousness before God. But once we are justified and our righteousness is in Christ and He has put us in a place of justification, the law is no longer necessary for the same purposes for a Christian. It's not supposed to be the everyday condemner of you. Live in the gospel, not in the law. 
Now, there's a use for the law, and we're going to talk about all that in the next couple of weeks. There's a use for the law, but it is not the main way of motivation or help for the Christian life. Well, let's keep going. All right, the law is good. Sin is bad. When I, when I wrote that, I was like, that's the best outline I can come up with. Verses 8 to 12, let me read that. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment, what the commandment, which one? Thou shalt not covet. Produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. What does he mean? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, don't covet, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, the bad guy, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what about that? Number one, the law is used by sin to produce more sin. Uh, St. Augustine said that the worst punishment of sin is more sin. Because you actually get your way. Um, Lord, give me what I want. Okay. Have fun with that. So the law is used by sin to produce more sin. Three things. In verse 8, we see sin as lying dormant. This sin took an opportunity. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now don't go too far with the word dead. Because sin never went away. It doesn't mean annihilation. It means separation. It means that the sin didn't have its greatest power or usefulness. It wasn't alive to me. It, wasn't, it was taking over my life, but it didn't take full opportunity until there was a commandment. It's crazy. It's crazy. But that's how the sin nature works. The more you tell me, yes, ma'am. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Good, good, great question. Great question. Um, I'm just going to make something up up here. And... Um, Progressively fatter, apparently. This might actually be my autobiography. Uh, here at 25, here at 45, here at 55, right now. Okay. Okay, here's the point. This sin thing that Paul is talking about is the internal uh, old man before I'm a Christian, and then what he would call the flesh afterwards, right? And so when we look at the bigger picture, there's before the fall... You have Adam. And Adam, um, he could sin, but he didn't have to. He was not righteous, but he was innocent. So he had not been tested, he could sin. And there was nothing inside of him that compelled him to sin. It would be a choice that you would make in neutrality, if you will. Because people would want to say, but if he hadn't sinned before, why would he sin? God gave the free choice in the garden that he was able to freely choose between righteousness and sin. He chose sin. Thanks, Adam. I'm sure if I had been there, that never would have happened. That late. <laughs> like day six, where, where's the sin machine? You know, right? Okay, second point though. Now, all of humanity in Adam, that's been Paul's point in chapter five. What does Adam look like in me and you now? Well, we must sin. And hold on. 
this thing, right, we're a slave to sin. Sin is the old man. It's not a thing. It's a, it's a capacity or desire to do things. When I say we must sin, I don't mean every individual sin. Every sinner sins differently than others about the Ten Commandments. But we all sin and we don't choose God's glory. And we're stuck in our little sin thing. All of our free choices now are within a bubble of not understanding the gospel and not comprehending. We must sin because we're slaves to sin. However, um, we can sin. We do. We must. That's depravity. Okay, but then, now Paul is talking about this guy. Right? In chapter 7. He's talking about, in chapter 6. What does this person look like now who's saved? Well, we can sin. We don't have to. Oh, look. It's like Adam. But we still can sin. God gave us a new nature. What does that mean? Well, we're going to get into that in the next chapter and a half. I would suggest for our purpose here that the anatomy of this is simply this. That the new man, if you will, is the resurrection of the old mind, will, and affections. That person, me, you, can now understand God's word, can choose what is right, and desires what is right. Paul's going to say, I desire in the inner man to do the right thing. However, chapter 7 is to show us we would expect, if that's the case, we're never going to sin again. Because God gave us the born again thing. But he's decided until this guy gets it, Halo Head, not the game. But this guy in glorification cannot sin, will not sin. Sin will not even be an option. What we call free will, that Adam could sin, thankfully God is going to remove that option. You're like, so am I going to be a zombie robot in heaven? That's always the argument about that. But in God's glory, I don't know exactly other than to say, because we see the beatific vision, I don't know. But God is going to secure us, and we will now be, we are righteous, but we will be righteous in a way Adam never was. So he's restored us to a damnic possibility. I've now restored this so it works. The mind, will, and affections are attached to God again. We want to do what's right. But now you have a war. Because the war is not over, it's skirmishes. We're already into, we're already defeated the enemy, but now there's door to door combat, right? And they're not going to give up. We're in Fallujah. There's stuff going on, but this is, Paul's telling you look, man, every day's a war, it's a battle. But thank God he's going to deliver us. Romans 8 tells us that we are going to be in heaven and glorified. But while you're here, there's help on the way, it's the Holy Spirit. Is that helpful? Okay, that's kind of where we are. So where we are is Paul's describing his war, but it's not the end of the story. Romans 7 and 8 goes on to tell more. I always talk to Carla about seeing her in heaven. And, you know, the one thing, the one, the one thing in the Gospels and everything, I'm being, I'm being funny here, 90%, but 10% sort of. It's like, there's no marriage in heaven? We invested all this time? <laughs> 39 years. It'll be 40 this year, Lord willing. Invested all that, and we don't get to be married in heaven. And I brought that up to Carly. She's like, Dave, I don't want to be married to you. I want to be married to Jesus. 
if you marry Elizabeth Elliot, you know what you got, right? All right, so, all right, fair enough. All right, so back to page three. I don't even know where I'm at. Middle of page three. The law is used by sin to produce more sin. The law challenges sin's autonomy. And sin says, I'm my own God. So when the law comes forth, sin's like, uh-uh, and then it tries to act. Paul's experience with the law is typical. Now, by that, I don't mean to use the word typical as in, isn't that typical? You know what I mean? Like, oh, wouldn't you expect that? But that's actually what the word typical means. It's the same as other things. It's typical of that which we're talking about. Or that's the norm that you would expect in a given situation, given the context. So my point is, Paul's experience with the law would be typical of our experience of the law. It's not a prototype because he's not the first kind. Let me just go on. Verse 9. At first, he, Paul, thought he was alive. What does that mean? I'm just fine. I'm a good person, just like the rich young ruler. This does not mean that he was spiritually alive. Actually, quite the opposite. He didn't know he was dead. Because the law tells you you're dead. It doesn't tell you you're alive. That's weird. It's like a zombie machine. It checks zombies for their zombiness. Never thought about that before. He was in a state of spiritual complacency, imagining that he was pleasing to God, i.e. the rich young ruler. This is the condition of every unbeliever. It's typical of all of us. We thought we were just fine until God did something in your heart. And then you knew you couldn't save yourself. And that's what Paul's testimony is. I came to a point where the commandments slew me. And I knew before God I was unholy. I could not save myself. And only Jesus could save me. And that's what Paul is telling us. So B, then God's commandment came to him with power. The moment when the rich young ruler is told, sell everything, Paul basically came under the conviction, I covet. Not that Paul didn't know the law as an external sense. He was a Pharisee. But the law hadn't yet done its work in his soul. That's his point. I was alive. I was good. Everything was great. And the law came and I died. But not in a bad way. I recognized my death. Sin kills. I was dying. The law showed me that I was a sinner and I was going to die. And I was dead before God and I couldn't save myself. Then springs, sin sprang into life. He had a shocking sense of how far short of God's standard he fell. And then he died to all hope in his law works. He realized that all of his spiritual accomplishments were rubbish. That's Philippians 3. Pastor Gabe is going to preach on, I believe, today, that section. And just to read it there in advance. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. That's where the rich young ruler needed to come. All my property? But what if I gain everything and I lose my soul? More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That is what the law tells us, but only the gospel creates in us. Alright, top of page four. The law which he expected to give him life instead revealed that he was dead. 
Paul uses the phrase, this commandment, which was meant for life, is confusing because we already know the law does not give life. It doesn't produce life. What does he mean? I'll give my best shot. That God often gave people commandments in the Old Testament, the whole commandments, and then personal to them, so that it would demonstrate that what they thought was going to be life. Let me just read. I'll read the text and then make my comment. I'm sorry. In what sense does the law give life? It's expected life. It does not actually give it. Ezekiel 20. I gave them my statues, this is what the Lord says, of Israel, and informed them of my ordinances, which, if a person follows them, then he will live by them. Now this is the confusing part of the Old Testament. Not really. They're both true. It's, if you do all the commandments and never sin, you will live. But guess what? You have a problem more than nurture. You have a nature problem. And you're never going to do this. That's the point. Okay, continue. Verse 12. Also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, so that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statues. They rejected my ordinances, which, if a person follows them, then they will live by them. And they greatly profaned my Sabbaths. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. Beautifully, the passage goes on to say, God says in his mercy, I did not in my mercy because of my promises. The law brings condemnation and death to the disobedient. What is the point? Um, God promises, hey, if you do everything right and you never sin, you'll have life. That's not happening. It always leads to death. Paul's other point is the law leads to death. Why? Because no one will ever do all of that. Plus, we have a sin nature that's not even being addressed there. All right, number four. Sin uses the law to deceive and condemn you. I want to be careful with the way that I word this particular illustration. But the law, I'm sorry, the, the sin is so heinous that it uses the good to murder someone with. It's killing someone with a crucifix. That's the image. It's horrible. But I want you to get that picture. And that is these four things. By making you think, what does sin use the law to do? By making you think that you're capable of earning God's favor by external law keeping. Sin will go along, what kind of sin? See, when we think of sin, as it's always heinous, it does the wrong thing. There's three, the root of sin is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Lust of the flesh, desire for pleasure. Lust of the eyes, the desire for possessions. And the pride of life, for power and prestige. So sin, guiding me, can make me quite righteous. As long as it suits that I will not accept the gospel. B, by making you believe the law on its own can constrain sin. Man, if I just really do the law, I'll never sin again. By making God's law appear to be unreasonable and oppressive, Genesis 3. That's what Satan said. Uh, has God said that? And Man, you know why he gave you that? He gave you those laws or that law of the tree because he knows he's hiding something from you. 
He doesn't want you to have that experience he has. He tells you not to eat of this tree. Why? Because he's got the knowledge of good and evil, and he's got stuff you don't have. And if he gave it to you, you'd be like him. That is always the lie of the sin. God is withholding something good, so you've got to go get it. That's how you get in credit card debt. You know, God hasn't supplied this, so cha-ching. We're $132,000 in debt. Why didn't God help us? And then D, by causing you to discount the consequences of disobedience. That's what he says. You will not surely die. So number five. What good then is the law? (laughs) The law brings you to the end of yourself. The verdict, the fault is not with the law, but with your sin. The law didn't make you sin. Your sinful nature made you sin. So bottom line, I sin because I'm a sinner. Verses 12 and 13, very simply. The law is not sin. Rather, God's law is holy, righteous, and good. How is it holy, righteous, and good? In many ways. But I would suggest the law displays God's holy character. The law is righteous, declaring God's perfect justice. And the law is good, expressing God's benevolence or kindness. The law is an extension of God. It is His Word, and that is of Himself and His character. And therefore, the, the what He said and that is his word of bond, is going to be holy, righteous, and good because God is holy, righteous, and good. And nor is the law responsible for your death. Man, the law made me die. No, no, no. That happened over here long before the law existed. It happened in the garden. And our sin nature is what made me die. The choice of Adam and my personal sins. The law didn't cause it. It just pointed it out. Your sinful nature, not the law, is a murderous villain. The law shows you how sinful you are. And the sinfulness of sin is demonstrated in that it uses God's good law as an instrument of death. Man, you are going to get out early today, but man, keep your head in the game. Have you ever seen me juggle? You're not going to either. All right. Okay, all right, I'm going to finish rather than, I don't want to turn my good talk, I hope, into a clown act yet. But, all right, bottom of page four. This is basically a palate cleanser. If you go to a fancy French restaurant, at the end they'll give you sorbet or something to cleanse your palate, or they'll cleanse it between courses, right, with some sort of sorbet. I want you to go away with the reality that the encouragement that the law is no longer our master Paul's point is, it did that to me, but in the next portion, Paul's going to fight against that notion. And here we go. Galatians is a good reminder. Galatians 2.4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. He's fighting against moralists in the church. Galatians 3. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Galatians 3. As many are as of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Right? You cannot pick as a selection, I do half the law. 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians 4. Tell me, you who want to be under law, 
Do you not listen to the law? Do you understand the law? You want to do that? Don't eat any animals with cloven hunky donkeys. Bring a pigeon. Galatians 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. That is what the law brings. And then finally, Galatians 5.13. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. Everybody wants to join the Messianic movement and redo all that stuff because you think God's still commanding it. Paul says, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision as a religious rite back in that day, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The law slays us to bring us to Christ who says, Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. Let me pray.